to the title, uh, which is, in fact, uh, a perfect title for uh, a lecture on, um, on the Pastoral Mystery, and it touches on a question that was absolutely at the heart of uh, early Christian theology in the first centuries of Christianity, particularly once Christianity was able to come out from underground and uh, be available in a public way, uh, in what was still, however, culturally and intellectually a largely pagan world in the fourth century, um, this was one of the fundamental questions that Christian intellectuals uh, had to address. How can you believe in a God who is, ends up on a cross? This is not what gods are supposed to do and certainly not philosophically respectable gods who keep their distance from uh, change and suffering. Um, so I'm going to touch on this a bit uh, along the way, uh, but I want to begin uh, by simply saying uh, a little by way of definition um, concerning the Paschal uh, Mystery. Any time of the year is a good time uh, to talk about the Paschal Mystery, but certainly uh, during the octave of Easter, um, during this, uh, this great week uh, when we daily uh, rejoice in the resurrection of Christ that we celebrated at the Easter Vigil uh, and on Easter Sunday, it's a particularly good time to speak about the Paschal Mystery. There are two terms here, obviously, Paschal and Mystery, and each of them is important. Paschal... Um, is a term that has a long uh, lineage in the Western languages, but it is ultimately rooted in the Hebrew word Pesach, or Passover. Okay? Um, so the Paschal mystery is the Passover mystery. This immediately, of course, connects the Christian faith in Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection to the history of Israel, and particularly, of course, uh, the events narrated in the book of Exodus, uh, the Passover instituted by God for the Israelites for all time, uh, and their subsequent liberation, the Jewish people's liberation from captivity, bondage in Egypt, their crossing of the Red Sea, and their coming to dwell in the Promised Land. So, as the Jews passed over from slavery to freedom and from captivity to life in the land of milk and honey by way of a dramatic divine deliverance, so Christians celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus as God's ultimate Passover act, God's ultimate act of deliverance to which the events of the Exodus, in fact, point. Okay? The Exodus events are, in Christian understanding, a, a profound and indispensable figure or anticipation of the events of Holy Week, and in particular of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. It's interesting that the Passover narrative in the Old Testament, the Exodus narrative, includes both a mighty divine act of liberation and a specific means by which that liberation takes place, which is the blood of the Passover lamb. Okay? God passes over his own people in his 
judgment on the Egyptians by way of the blood of the Passover lamb. And of course, this is also a fundamental anticipation or figure of what happens on the cross and on the third day. So, to speak of the Paschal mystery is to speak of the ultimate divine act of liberation from captivity, that is to say, from captivity to death. And it is to speak of the means by which God delivers us, the mighty act of God that delivers us, which is the totality of the events of Holy Week and in particular of Jesus' cross and resurrection. God liberated the Israelites from slavery. He delivered them from evil and he delivers all humanity from evil. He gives life to the dead in the Passover of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. If you went to the Easter Vigil, you may recall the importance of the reading from Exodus, which describes precisely the mighty act of God that liberated the Israelites at the Red Sea. Um, It's interesting, in the rubrics, there are actually nine readings. I haven't been to a vigil in a while that did all nine. Um, the one I went to this past, uh, this past Easter was, um, was five, okay? But the rubrics say, under no circumstances is the Exodus reading to be omitted, okay? So the rubrics sort of acknowledge that you may, you may think people can't quite deal with all nine readings and, and psalms and so forth, but never omit this one, okay? The narrative of God's liberation at the Red Sea. So the Paschal mystery is the Passover mystery. It's a mystery, okay? So what do we mean by mystery exactly? A mystery here isn't something that we haven't figured out yet because we lack a piece of information or something like, you know, who killed Kennedy. Um, You know, if we had enough data, you know, that wouldn't be a mystery anymore, okay? Uh, It's an unknown because we don't have enough information. And so people speculate endlessly about it. Uh, But this is a mystery. The Paschal mystery, as all the mysteries of the Christian faith, are are mysterious in a different sense. They are intrinsically unfathomable. That is to say, their depth can never be fully plumbed by us. So to speak of the Paschal mystery is to say that, that the Passover of Jesus Christ his suffering, death, and resurrection is unfathomable to us. However, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand it. It means we should give our all to entering into that mystery as deeply as we can with heart, mind, soul, and strength, but always understanding that there will be more to the mystery than we will succeed in grasping. That only when we see the Lamb himself face to face, as the book of Revelation describes, when we will be like him because we will see him as he is, as another text of John describes the letter of 1 John, uh, only then will we have a full apprehension of the Paschal mystery. Now, the, the Paschal mystery... The suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is also 
striking in this respect in terms of Catholic doctrine, okay, because the church has been remarkably reticent or cautious about defining doctrine here. It's quite striking. The church has a very carefully defined doctrine of God as Trinity. Okay? We utter it every Sunday in Mass. Okay? The church has a very carefully defined doctrine of the two natures of Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ is true God and true man, true human being, one and the same individual, one and the same person, to use the technical language, who is true God and true man. The church has a very, very carefully defined doctrine concerning the Eucharist. Okay? But the church doesn't have a sort of doctrine about the atonement, okay? or a doctrine about the paschal mystery in the sense that it says, this is how you should understand the cross, and in no other way. Right? It's quite striking that the church seems to urge that, that we allow manifold understandings of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That we don't try to narrow down our grasp of what is happening here to just one idea. Okay? So, for example, just, just um, to uh, give you one important instance, when Thomas Aquinas comes to consider how the passion of Christ saves us in the third part of the Summa Theologia, he says, well, in at least five ways, okay? By merit, satisfaction, sacrifice, redemption, and efficient causality, okay? Which is actually more than I could possibly talk about in, in this lecture. Um, I'm only going to be able to talk about a couple of those things. The point there is that He's, he's saying, Aquinas is saying, I think, in effect, there's no single theory of the atonement. Okay? It's a language that's sometimes used in theology. What's your theory of the atonement? Is it this or is it that? And I think it's important to Catholic understanding to grasp that there isn't any single way of looking at what happens here. There's a variety of ways. There are multiple ways, and they're all important. And you don't want to play them off against each other. I have a little phrase on the outline, event and meaning. So what am I talking about? The phrase Paschal Mystery, the term Paschal Mystery, refers to a very specific sequence of events, namely those that we have just celebrated from the Last Supper through the cross to the resurrection, from Holy Thursday to Good Friday, Holy Saturday to the Easter Vigil. Now, Scripture and Catholic tradition have much to say about the meaning of these events, again, about what's going on here, how we should enter into them and try to understand them. But at the same time, Scripture and Catholic tradition always direct us back to the events themselves, to the narration of these fundamental events. There's so much in... You, Go to the masses and liturgies of, of the Easter Tritium. There's so much going on. But it's, what's fundamental is that the story be told as it is given to us in Scripture and that we always have to turn our minds and hearts to that. Okay? So the Paschal Mystery is, in a sense, just some things that happened. Okay? 
and our whole task is to try to enter into those events and to understand them knowing that we will never grasp them fully. The events of Jesus' Passover from death to life that begins in the gift of himself in the upper room and on the cross and culminates in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. This is, again, in Catholic and Christian understanding, the Passover of all humanity. It is the Passover of all creation from death to life. These events as Scripture gives them to us, these are the fathomless mysteries. What happened here once for all, this is the Passover of all creation. This is what we must try to understand. Okay. Second item, incarnation and cross. Now, this is a big topic. I'm going to say a very small amount about it. But enough, I hope, to at least orient us toward the basic issues we need to be concerned about in what follows. It's the claim of Catholic faith, and we have to be very clear about this. And here you can get your texts ready. It's the claim of Catholic faith that the events I've just spoken of, the events that take place in the upper room on Good Friday, in the tomb on Easter Sunday. These events happen to God. God himself is the subject of all that is done and suffered here. And indeed is the subject of all that is done and suffered in the entire existence of Jesus from his conception in the womb of Our Lady until his existence at this instant at the right hand of the Father and forever. God himself is the one who does these things and to whom these things happen. And we say this, or we say we believe this, every time we get up and recite the creed. And so I've given you a couple of phrases from the creed in text one on the back, just to underline this point. Okay, I won't have time, that would be a separate lecture or um, year-long course uh, on the Incarnation. I'm not going to try to do everything there, but I am going to try to just highlight what the Creed gives us, which is, when you sort of stop and think about it, even for a moment, quite astonishing. So we say in the Creed, this begins the second paragraph of the Creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So the one Lord Jesus Christ is, as the Gospel of John puts it in the very first verses, the one who is in the beginning with the Father. Okay? There is no time before the only begotten Son of God. So when we are speaking about Jesus Christ, we're speaking about the only begotten Son of God. Well, who is this Son? Well, the creed goes on to tell us, born or brought forth by the Father before all ages, God from God. Okay? So we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of lines that are important, God. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, from God. Okay? 
Now, again, what I won't be able to go into here is the fromness in God that is spoken of here in the Creed. That's fundamental to the doctrine of the Trinity. That's why we can have lots of question time if you like. But what I want to underline here is that the Creed tells us that when we speak of Jesus Christ, we're speaking of God himself. We're speaking of the one who was in the beginning with the Father, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven by the Holy Spirit, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Incarnate, that is to say, enfleshed. Okay? So again, from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Word became flesh. That's exactly what's being said here in the Creed. For the Holy Spirit was incarnate and flesh to the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So what does the pronoun, or to whom I should say, does the pronoun he refer here? This isn't class, so you don't have to hold up your hands. It refers, quite evidently, to the one who was in the beginning, the only begotten Son of God. It refers to the one who is God from God. He, God, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He, God, suffered death in the flesh that he assumed and was buried. He rose again on the third day. So it's utterly fundamental to Christian faith, and this was a matter of as I mentioned at the outset, tremendous concern in early Christianity to clarify this. That when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are talking about God himself in the flesh. Nothing else and nothing less. Now, how to understand that, that's a topic and topic for a separate uh, series of lectures and for a lifetime, but that's what we're saying. Okay? I was once at a, um, a big annual convention of religion professors uh, that takes place every year. Um, one of the advantages of aging is that you don't have to go to these things anymore if you don't want to. Um, and uh, at that time, I couldn't skip it. Um, and I was at the, I was at the buffet um, getting something to eat and talking to a friend, and, and someone uh, else at the buffet who was clearly not attending the convention heard us talking about Christology, okay, about the natures, the natures of Jesus Christ. And he said, what are you, what are you guys doing? You know? And he said, oh, well, we're here for a religion convention. And he said, oh, so well, I got a question for you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God Almighty in the flesh? And my friend and I, who were both Catholics, said, yes. And he said, oh, good. And he went back to his meal. <laughs> Evidently surprised that two professors believe such a thing, but, um, but not displeased. All right. So um, that's what we believe about Jesus. And what I'll try to help us understand a little bit then is how that bears on our grasp of the meaning of these events. Another point I want to underline here, and this is, um, again, one that has, has occupied Catholic theology from, from an early time, um, is that the incarnation, the becoming flesh of God from God, of the one who is God from God, is not 
an end in itself. It is undertaken in the, in the plan of God, as St. Peter speaks of in the, the readings from Acts this week, in the plan of God that has been realized in the Paschal Mystery, the Incarnation is undertaken so that the Paschal Mystery can happen. The Incarnation is undertaken for the sake of the cross. Now, God does this freely, okay? God doesn't have to become incarnate. And having become incarnate, God, God doesn't have to go to the cross. But it is part of God's purpose for fallen humanity, for a ruined creation, to repair that creation, to restore that creation by becoming flesh and going to the cross. And so the second text I'd like us briefly to look at is from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where Jesus is speaking. Speaking to his apostles on the eve of his passion. And he says, now my soul is troubled. So this is an anticipation of the agony of Gethsemane, which is not depicted in John, but is depicted in the other Gospels. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus says in John repeatedly, I came to do the will of the one who sent me. I came for this hour. The hour of the Paschal Mystery. The hour of the cross and the tomb. Catechism of the Catholic Church, just to give one of many possible instances, picks this up and says his redemptive passion, or his saving passion, was the very reason for his incarnation, for his becoming flesh. Okay, so that's some background, and now let's talk about the actual uh, events themselves. I think it's important to understand that the Paschal Mystery begins with the institution of the Eucharist. It's sometimes spoken of, not necessarily um, with malice or forethought, but sometimes spoken of as though it was just the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But Holy Thursday is part of the Triduum, right? It begins with the Mass commemorating and making present Jesus' institution of the Eucharist for our salvation. What does Jesus do in the upper room? Fundamentally, he offers himself, he offers his own flesh, his body and blood, which he gives to the apostles, but before he gives it to them, he says, this is my body which will be given up for you. Given up unto death, obviously. For you, given up to the Father for your salvation. So, what happens in the upper room is that Jesus offers himself, his body and blood, to the Father for the life of the world and the forgiveness of sins. So, if you like, the Eucharistic institution, when Jesus is in the upper room with the apostles, is his commitment. his handing of himself over to his suffering and death for our salvation. And this is really important. 
Okay? Because the suffering and death itself doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's not, there's, nothing, there's nothing great about suffering and dying as such. Okay? Why is the suffering and death of Jesus the redemption of the world? Why is it the Passover for all creation? Well, because it's a deliberate act on Jesus' part of offering, of offering himself to God for us and for our salvation. This is my body, which will be given up for you. This is my blood, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Paschal mystery begins in the upper room and it continues. And here we come to Good Friday, although it's really the night passing over into the day. It continues in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus, who is fully human, right? He's true God and true man, fully human and fully divine, but being fully human, he shrinks from death. The living creature shrinks from death. And, well, it should. The Book of Wisdom says God did not create death. Death is God's enemy, right? First Corinthians, St. Paul says, chapter 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is our enemy, certainly, and ultimately God's enemy. It's not something God made. It's something we introduced into creation. Well, the angels had their role in it, but that's a, that's a complicated story, all right? At any rate, creatures introduced death into creation. God did not make death, as Scripture teaches us. So in Gethsemane, when Jesus shrinks from death, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. In other words, not my shrinking from death, but your will that I've already committed myself to, that's the will that I am accepting in all of its intensity, okay? which includes, of course, his own suffering and death. All right, so that leads us then. I know we're moving quickly here, but again, I'll stay as long as you like. Um, to what is usually thought of as the sort of central issue when it comes to um, the Paschal mystery, how to understand the meaning of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as I said at the beginning, there are in Catholic, in Scripture itself, and I'll touch on this, and also in Catholic theology uh, and Catholic tradition, there are a lot of different ways of understanding the meaning of the cross, of, of attempting as best we can beginning with what scripture itself teaches, attempting to fathom the mystery of God on the cross. What is happening here? So what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, and this is going to be all too brief, but what I'm going to talk about are three ways in which, three important ways, three central ways, but by no means the only ways that scripture and Catholic tradition uh, talk to us about or teach us 
about the meaning specifically of the suffering and death of Jesus, which he has already offered in the upper room and accepted in the Garden of Gethsemane. One way the Catholic tradition, and it goes back a long ways to the early church, understands what's happening here is what I call in the outline salvation by contact. I think this is a profound and important way of seeing what's happening on the cross, which is perhaps more familiar to our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters than it is to uh, us Roman Catholics. Um, So you have a quotation, this is text number three, from St. Athanasius, okay? Uh, Athanasius uh, was a hugely important figure in Christian history, um, Bishop of Alexandria for about 40 years. He died in the year 373. He was a fundamental force behind the shaping of the Nicene Creed, what we say every, uh, that we say every Sunday in Mass. Now, he wrote a treatise. Um, he wrote a lot of treatises. He wrote a treatise called On the Incarnation, in which he makes the following remark. Now, this is a very dense statement. For this reason, the word, that is to say, the son, the one who is in the beginning with God, the one who is God from God, for this reason, the word takes to himself a body capable of death. So the pagans were asking, or the non-Christian intellectuals are saying, why would would God want to die? I mean, this seems very odd. Aren't God supposed to not do things like that? And so Athanasius is answering that question. He says, well, for this reason, the word God himself, God from God, takes to himself a body capable of death in order that it, namely the body capable of death, participating in the word, being united to the word, which is to say to God himself, in order that participating in the word who is above all, it, that body, might be sufficient for death on behalf of all, and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible. The body that was joined to the word who was in the beginning with God, by being joined, by having our corruptible, perishing flesh joined to the incorruptible, immortal God, that perishing flesh will be transformed. It will be suffused with the incorruptibility and immortality of God himself. It will be, in a standard term of Eastern Christian theology, deified, made God-like. It's still a creature, but it is suffused with God. The body of Jesus himself is divinized by his union with God the word. Through the indwelling word, this body remains incorruptible, and so corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. For a long time, I didn't understand this very much. It didn't have any existential import to me. I first read this text when I was about 20, um, which was a few years ago. And um, I couldn't get this. Why is he so worried? I mean, Athanasius is so worked up about corruption and mortality. I mean, th- those are the big problems. And I was, you know, still in college, right? And 
uh, I had various things that, about the faith that impacted me, you know, in a deep way. But they had to do with guilt and, you know, things like that. They didn't have to do with corruption. I wasn't worried about corruption. Well, that was 40 plus years ago, okay? Um, and, you know, now that various things are decaying and uh, not working right, um, uh, I really understand what Athanasius is talking about. I'm quite serious about this. That, that the whole problem for humanity, not all that there is to it, but a fundamental problem for humanity, as Athanasius sees it, is that we're perishing. And again, Book of Wisdom, chapter 1, God did not make death. So God comes to the rescue of his perishing creature, but how does he do it? He does it by joining the perishing creature to himself and giving his own immortal and incorruptible life to that creature in Jesus himself. So the resurrection is what happens when our perishing flesh, in its dying, comes has, has existed in contact with the immortal Word of God. So that's one way of understanding what happens on the cross. But it is the contact of our death with the immortal God. And through the contact of our death with the immortal God, because God is willing to go to the cross, our death itself is transformed into its opposite. This is a very important idea in a whole strain of the Christian tradition, again, particularly um, the sort of Greek-speaking uh, theology of the ancient uh, and early medieval world. Um, one of the important aspects of this, so here you see the connection between incarnation and cross. Why God on the cross? Well, because he transforms our death into life. But not only that, this is a point that Athanasius' later disciple Cyril of Alexandria emphasizes, not only does he transform our death into life in his own case, he gives us that life-giving flesh, okay? that deified flesh, the flesh of Jesus. When he says, this is my body which will be given up for you, take this and eat it, right? There's a very direct line in this understanding that Athanasius is giving us, there's a very direct line between the Incarnation, the cross, and the Eucharist. The flesh, flesh which is filled with life such that it cannot remain in the tomb but must rise from the dead, that flesh that is filled with life touches our flesh, our still perishing flesh in the Eucharist, and gives it life. Okay? This is sometimes called... Um, in a way that's meant derogatorily, um, a uh, physicalist understanding of salvation. You know, and some some modern historians of dogma were very critical of this. They said it's very crude. Um, you know, we need a much more sort of morally sophisticated understanding of this that doesn't just think in these sort of terms of touching. But it does seem to me um, that there's a lot to be said for this that the word touches the flesh of Mary's son and the flesh of Mary's son touches us and that's how we come to have life. Okay. A second way of thinking about what happens on the cross, not opposed to the first, but just different with the stress laid in, in different places. And that's the notion of the cross is a very important in, in the Catholic, Western Catholic tradition of the cross as satisfaction. 
Okay? It's a term that is very extensively used in medieval and modern Catholic discussion of, uh, of the Paschal Mystery and particularly of the cross. What is satisfaction? Well, it's the, the term means, in Catholic theology, it means the offering of someone, sorry, of something to another as recompense for a wrong that's been done. Okay? And it has two crucial places of, of sort of significance in Catholic thought and in Catholic practice. One is in relation to the cross, and one is in relation to the sacrament of reconciliation, okay? where your penance is your satisfaction, your small part. It's not much, but it's your small part in making recompense for your sins. So the idea then is that you get particularly in the theology of Anselm of Canterbury uh, in his great, marvelously intricate and difficult uh, book, Curtius Homo, Why a God-Man, okay, and Why God on a Cross, Why an Incarnation. Anselm very influentially argues that God goes to the cross, the Son of God goes to the cross in order to offer to God, the Son to the Father, in order to offer something so valuable that it outweighs all of the evil that humanity has done. And as Anselm reasons it out, and that's a, it's a very interesting and complex argument, but as he reasons it out, the only thing that could possibly be offered that's more valuable than that compensates, I should say, for the evil that humanity has done, that has a value that outweighs the evil that humanity has done, and the angels too, the creatures have done, the only thing that could be more valuable than that is the very life of God himself. So Anselm comes up with this argument in which he proposes, here's the situation we're in. If we're going to have a repair or a recompense for the evil that the creatures have introduced into the world, angels and humans, it's going to have to be of a nature that only God could do it. Okay? It's going to have to outweigh all of creation. It's going to have to have a value that exceeds that of all creation, and so argues. But of course, God doesn't owe it to anybody. <laughs> It's fallen and sinful humanity that owes this to God. And so he argues, and here's text four, that's why you have God on a cross. That's why you have the incarnation and the cross. Quoting Anselm now, text four, it is necessary that the one who is to make satisfaction, in other words, make an adequate recompense to God for evil, be both perfect God and perfect man, perfect human being, okay? Since, this is the whole argument in a nutshell, but it's a, you know, 90 densely argued pages, but this is the whole sort of thing in a nutshell. Since no one can do it, no one can make this offering but the true God, and no one owes it but human beings. 
So it has to be a God-man. Okay? True God and true man. Who as man offers the infinite value of his divine life for our salvation. Now the idea that the cross is in some sense the payment of a debt, which is one fundamental thing that's going on here in Anselm, uh, actually has deep scriptural roots. Okay? Um, I won't belabor this, especially since I promised to be done by 20 after 7, and, and it's 21 after 7. Um, but in a, there's a great text in the Epistle to the Colossians in chapter 2, um, a text which was much discussed in, uh, already in the early church, which speaks of Jesus Christ canceling the bond which stood against us, nailing it to the cross. He canceled the bond which stood against us, nailing it to the cross. And you might, reading that late one night, sort of say, what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about, what Paul's talking about, is a mechanism of debt payment in the ancient world. The bond is a, is a document, it's a, it's a physical thing, in which the borrower promises to repay the debt. And the debt, when the debt is fully repaid, the borrower then is given the bond or the note, we would say nowadays, and then can tear it up, okay? It no longer exists. If the lender wants to be generous and forgive the debt, the lender can say, okay, I'll tear it up, All right? But, you know, this is in the days before electronic banking and so forth, where, you know, they can, they can take your money out no matter what. And at this time, the possession of the bond was the reality of the debt. If you didn't have the bond, you couldn't prove the debt. You couldn't go up and say, well, you remember when you borrowed, you know, 10 shekels from me 17 years ago? Uh, No, I don't remember. That's my daughter, okay? You owe me $300. Huh? Really? Okay. I don't remember. Not in that situation. If you don't have the things, okay, you've got to produce the document, all right? Here it is, all right, you signed it. Oh, I forget, okay, now I remember, all right? So the actual physical thing is hugely important. It is, again, the reality of the debt. And so what Colossians is saying is that Christ ripped up our debt to God, <laughs> destroyed our debt to God. And Anselm is giving us his own account of the way that that works, okay? All right, thirdly, and again, I'll have to be... Uh, unfortunately, very quick about this. Um, a text from Thomas Aquinas. There's another aspect, certainly, to what happens on the cross, which um, we're all very conscious of, I think, particularly uh, on Good Friday and, and Holy Saturday, um, which um, is nicely captured in the passage from Isaiah, which is read uh, on Good Friday. Truly, he has borne our griefs. Okay? Truly, Christ has borne our griefs. That is to say that in his suffering and his death, what's go- another thing that's going on here is that Jesus has entered into complete solidarity with us sinners. He has not himself commit sin, but he's entered into 
complete solidarity with us sinners because he accepts the full consequences, the full reality and outcome of our sin. He accepts, if you like, the lot of sinners. He is reckoned with the transgressors. And Aquinas, St. Thomas, gives us a very interesting account of how the suffering of Jesus, the suffering due to sinners, accepted by Jesus, is is redemptive for us. How it is that he has borne our griefs. And this is in the the last text. By suffering out of love and obedience... Christ offered to God more than was required as a recompense for the entire offense of the human race. Now, this ties in with the notion of satisfaction that I was referring to a little earlier. But then he gives his own interesting twist to this. First, why is, this, why is the suffering of Christ so valuable to God? Does God just like suffering? Well, no, actually. God did not make death and everything that leads to death. Why is this so valuable? Because first, and I think this is a sort of a particularly significant that he puts this first, because of the magnitude or the greatness of the love with which he suffered. So it's Jesus' human love for the Father and for us. His charity, that's the term Aquinas uses here, is a very heavily loaded term for him. It's his self-giving love for the Father and for us in his suffering that is so valuable about the suffering itself. It's not that God has to see somebody suffer. That's not it at all. Rather, it's that Christ accepts the lot of sinners with the most intense imaginable love, or indeed a more intense than imaginable love for God and for every human being. Secondly, his suffering is of value because of the dignity of his life, here again similar to Anselm, which was the life of both God and man, which he offered as recompense. And third, because of the extent of his suffering and the greatness of the sorrow he assumed. He identifies himself willingly with our condition. He has truly borne our griefs. So these are three ways in which we can think about the meaning of the cross but there are lots of other ways. And there's lots of other scriptural passages that are pertinent here, um, and I'm already beyond the time that I said I would stop. So I'm not going to stop, though, not at least for about a minute and a half, because I don't want to leave out the resurrection, okay? I mean, that would be, that would be unfortunate, right? Um, uh, and I think it's actually quite important to see that Paschal mystery is a, is a whole. It, it has diff- discrete aspects, if you like, but it, every part is related to every other part, and especially, of course, the cross and the resurrection are related. So you have the passage from Romans 4, okay, which is a kind of um, marker. I mean, it's a basic sort of statement, um, much noticed for just this reason in the tradition, about the Paschal mystery. It kind of sums up, in a sense, what happens in the Paschal mystery. He was handed over to death for our sins. So that's one side of it. That's the cross. And raised for our justification. Now, justification here means fundamentally being right with God. So what Paul is emphasizing is that the cross and the resurrection 
of the incarnate God of Jesus Christ are inseparable. They constitute one paschal mystery. They're two discrete events, but they belong together. The cross is the forgiveness or the removal of our sins, however we understand that to happen. And again, there are multiple ways in which we can think about that. The cross is the forgiveness or removal of our sins. It is liberation from sin. The resurrection is new life for the forgiven. New life that only the forgiven can receive. Now, of course, the resurrection of Jesus is new life for us, but it is, first of all, an event that happens with Jesus, right? First, Jesus rises, and he, in fact, is, in a sense, the agent of this event in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I take it up again. At the same time, the Scripture also makes a strong point of the idea that Jesus is raised by the Father. Okay, for example, again, in the sermons of Peter and Acts that we've been hearing uh, this, this week in Mass, um, the Father raised up this Jesus and has exalted him. Okay? So first of all, the resurrection is an event that happens with Jesus to the dead, the crucified and dead Jesus. Okay? So the justification of which Paul speaks here, the new life for the forgiven that the resurrection brings to us, that new life is, first of all, our union with this risen Christ. It's, first of all, our relationship with this risen Christ. Because even now, Christ gives us a genuine share in his risen life. And he gives us this share in his life, of course, sacramentally, in baptism. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too, with him, might walk in newness of life. We too, joined to him by our baptism, might walk in newness of life. And we receive this life daily in the Eucharist. At the same time, almost done, our new life is not yet fully realized. As I was saying earlier, we know this. In fact, the longer we live, the more obvious it becomes. We live in hope of its full realization. We already live in the spirit and not in the flesh, as Paul says. But we live in hope that this new life will be perfected or fulfilled. And so Jesus' resurrection is not only the gift of new life to us, this once-for-all event that happens to Jesus himself is not only the gift of new life to us, it is also the pledge of our own bodily rising, which he himself will bring about. As Jesus himself says in John 6, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, again, the Eucharist is absolutely fundamental here, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Eucharist is not only new life for us here and now, it definitely is that, but it is also the sure promise of the resurrection of our own mortal bodies. Thank you.